This is Jessica. And this is Kelly. And this is the Chasing Brighter podcast. So joining us today is Don Rusick, who is one of my oldest, longest, maybe I should say longest, mom friends. And our kids have been going to school together since they were three. And Don's done a lot of different things in her career, even throughout the time that I've known you. Um, but one of the more recent, her most recent role is at Lawndale Christian Legal Center, which seems like they do a lot of very interesting things in terms of social justice, which is what our focus has been in October. Um, Donna's also an avid book reader. We exchange a lot of book recommendations and a fellow Pelotoner as well, <laughs> <laughs> among other things. Um, so with, with that, Don, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So as we get started, um, maybe you can tell us like your role now mm-hmm. at LCLC, is that yep. what? that's right. Um, and, you know, kind of in the, in the spirit of social justice, kind of what the organization does. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thank you for having me again. And, um, you know, how commendable that you guys are featuring social justice this month. Um, it's really admirable. So thank you for bringing a spotlight to that. Um, so I am the vice president of research and development at LCLC. Um, first, it's probably really helpful if I tell you a little bit about the work that we do. So Lawndale Christian Legal Center was founded in 2010 in North Lawndale, which is a neighborhood on Chicago's west side. And it's, um, you know, marked by all of the characteristics that you think are common to people who experience over-policing, over-prosecution, and over incarceration. So a lot of poverty, mm-hmm. a lot of violence, um, underperforming schools, lack of employment, you name it, um, wow. you know, just lack of opportunity writ large. Uh, so the Legal Center was founded because one of the most commendable things I think about North Lawndale is they really are committed and invested in the community being the solution. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes you'll see, <clears throat> you know, you have large universities or outside organizations, foundations, and this is, you know, I'm sure well-intentioned people with really, you know, wanting to do good work, but it's outsiders who have no knowledge of life within this community and how things affect them. And they come in bringing these solutions that typically end up failing or causing more harm. And what North Londo was committed to was saying the community already has the solutions, they need the resources. And so let's find out from them what they need, what what they want. And so there's um, a church called Londo Community Church who gathered a group of community residents. And this was many, many, many years ago, like mm-hmm. back in the 80s. And the residents identified five things that they wanted for their community. So one was like a health center, um, you know, one was housing, so on an, a, a basketball court um, or a gym. And then one of the things they identified was competent, affordable legal services. Mm -hmm. And all the, they kind of, the church went through and they, you know, they got the health center, which is, you know, a beautiful Mm state-of-the-art health center now that really is an anchor for the community. They, you know, developed all these things that the community wanted, but the legal center was the last thing to come along. And it really Mm -hmm. was a meeting of the right person at the right time. And um, then, so in 2010, about 30 years after the the community sort of identified that, um, the legal center was born. And it started with one one staff member who was a criminal defense attorney, CEO, executive director serving, you know, a couple of kids a year to now having 60 staff serving over 300 individuals a year. Wow. And yeah, so tremendous growth and, you know, in just over 12 years. And um, 
We provide community-based holistic legal services. So nobody knows what that means. But um, basically what it what it means is that the community base is that we are in the community we serve and we only serve that community. So our headquarters are in North Lawndale and we only serve youth who reside in North Lawndale. Okay. And why that's important is many reasons. One is that um, the clients we serve are navigating all sorts of safety issues and if you weren't familiar with that community, you wouldn't know what those were, and you would be inadvertently putting people in, into dangerous situations. It also just builds incredible community competence, um, cultural competence to say, like, we are in this community, we're with you, we're of you. Um, and it just lends a whole a whole another level of credibility. Mm-hmm. So that's the community-based aspect of it. Um, and then holistic legal services that every young person we work with and we serve individuals who are under 25 years old. So there's no floor that's as young as they come to us, as young as someone would be arrested up until um, 24 and 364 days. <laughs> uh, and that's just because of the neuroscience of the brain development is mm-hmm. why we stop at that age. But um, so every young person we work with has an attorney a case manager and an uh, street outreach worker. And then we also have restorative justice um, interventionists who do circle keeping processes with a subgroup of young people too. So what we really believe is that obviously we want the best legal outcomes for the person that's available. But in addition to the legal outcomes, we really just want your life to, to be everything that you want it to be and that you never have contact with the criminal justice system again. So we, you know, we treat both sides equally. In fact, about you know three quarters of our budget are spent on the social services side, although we are oh, a legal okay. services center. Mm-hmm. Um, we do put a lot more, there is a lot more resources on the social side of, of the individual's needs. Um, and so, yes, you know, we want better outcomes in court and in life. So um, like, let's take there's a young, like you have one of your case, what do you call a client? Client. Mm-hmm. One of your clients is young. Um, is incarcerated or arrested for something, um, serves their time or whatever goes through that legal process, then does your organization stay with that person to provide social support until like they are almost 25 kind of a thing to help Mm -hmm. them continue to be successful? Yeah. So we typically come in on the front side of a case, like individuals usually find us because they need legal representation and have heard about us. So we usually come in on the the front side, hopefully, you know, as soon as the person is arrested. So, um, you know, that just helps with the whole trajectory of the court case. But we will stay, we do stay and continue working with the person um, through any sentencing period. So if the person was sentenced to um, incarceration, like in whether it's DOC or IDJJ, um, we would work with them, be a part of their life throughout that time, whether it's letter writing or visiting or whatever the case is, until the person was released. And then, um, you know, we would base that interaction that kept going forward based off what they needed. So what supports do they need? There's a lot, you know, it's all individualized. And so it is... um, taken into account what the person wants, but certainly we we stay with them through the end of any sentencing period. And there have been, you know, since I've been there, um, you know, cases when somebody's come home on parole and something has happened and we, you know, we're still working with them. Um, and then if they, you know, say they're found not guilty or plea out or are in probation, we do stay with them until they feel like they don't need our services anymore. So okay. once their kind of their plans are accomplished, then we start to, you know, um, 
make our way out of their lives, but they can come back to us at any point in time. So um, once they're in, they're in, and we have really long-term, very strong relationships with the clients. And I think that's one thing about being in the community is you really see them sort of as you're going about your daily life to, um, you know, there's, there's just a really strong bond. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like you guys are trying to really reduce the rate of recidivism, right? So are you guys, do you have, um, numbers that reflect that? I mean, do you, do you feel Mm -hmm. like you guys are really making an impact and and reducing the numbers of incarceration? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously that's one of the biggest metrics people always want to know about. And, um, we do track that, but I will say before I tell you what it is, there's two little caveats. One is recidivism is usually measured by the rate of rearrest over a three-year period. Now we are in a very over-policed community. Arrest is not uncommon. Arrest does not mean you did anything wrong. Arrest could be, I was doing nothing and I was arrested and that is very common. And so I think it is misleading to make assumptions based off that. Um, It would be very, it would be more helpful to look at a conviction. So like, um, but you know, so as not to uh, confuse okay. the term because it typically is measured as a rearrest. Um, so just pointing that out. And then the other issue that we have is that, um, you know, once a person is free of the justice system, they're not, we don't track them. Right. So once we're not working with them anymore, it's not like we're tracking them to see where oh, you're okay. arrested, where you, so what we can, what we're able to do is say, while the person is working with us, um, have they been rearrested? And I can say that figure, um, it's about 10% of clients that we're wow. actively working with are rearrested, which is phenomenal and, yeah. you know, amazing. But there isn't a great um, comparison because usually it is looked at as like this three-year retrospective. But we are currently participating in a randomized control trial with the University of Chicago Inclusive Economy Lab. And what um, the, the RCT is looking at is LCLC's model of service versus the status quo. So our kind of mm. hyper local wraparound services for very long time versus um, what someone would receive if they were working with the public defender or a private attorney. And so we're about halfway through the recruitment fra- phase of the study. So um, stay tuned because that will be <laughs> that will be like a very robust, decisive um, study that that will be able to look at that, that factor and that outcome. And that study, is that sort of kind of going down the the road of like what you, what your role is at LCLC? Like, is that some of the stuff that you're getting involved in? Um, you are VP of research and development. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I have a dual role in, in that I'm over the data um, and I have two people on our data team and I oversee that. And then I'm also over all of like the grant writing. Oh, okay. And um, I would say the grant writing side of thing probably takes up a significant more amount of time um, because also I'm a team of one on that side versus um, I do have some members on my data team, on the data team so that, um, you know, there's more help over there. But uh you know, those two things might seem disparate, but they really feed into each other. Mm-hmm. And you can't have, you know, you can't have good grants. You can't get resources without having, you know, a proven model, without having good outcomes, without showing what you're doing and showing that it's working. Um, so, you know, I've been able to kind of meld these two things together. Um, but certainly, yes, I the RCT is definitely a piece of um, what I do uh, with, with the lab and obviously with the team. So um, taking a couple of steps back in terms of your own career. So you, what is your degree in? 
So I have an undergraduate degree in political science and Spanish, and then um, my master's degree is in public policy. Oh, okay. So Mm -hmm. is this along the lines of what you kind of want to do in some way, or like what made you choose this particular line of work? Yeah. Um, I don't know how, I don't know why I was so drawn. I've always worked sort of in um, the criminal justice field and it's hard for me to exactly put my finger on what drew me into it. Cause usually people who, um, you know, are in it long-term had direct experience or, you know, in some way were affected by it. And that's not my case, but um, when I really have like sat and thought about it, I think it comes from a sense of outrage because when I was young and very extremely naive and Pollyannish, I just thought like the justice system is this thing that's like infallible. It never makes a mistake. If you're in prison, it's because you did something wrong. If you're arrested, it's because you did something wrong. Like it only that's it's a perfect system. And I I think I really had that as a core belief um, when I was young. And when I realized that's actually not at all what the case is, Mm -hmm. um, actually, you know, it's very much the opposite. I just think uh, it lit something inside of me where it just really drew me in um, to wanting to work on it and be a part of reforming that and transforming it. And I can hear that passion that you have and, and correct me if I'm wrong, like what you're talking about is kind of institutional systems that are set up to hyper-focus on a community. I mean, we recently interviewed um, Dr. Sarah Demoyne, who um, utilizes critical race theory. And we talked a lot about that kind of institutional racism and, mm-hmm. and systems, like big systems that are that are set up, you know? And so it sounds yeah. like that's kind of, what you're talking about. And we talked about that a little bit, Kelly and I, about our experience with race and racism, again, being naive, not being exposed to a lot of diversity, thinking one thing, and then, you know, moving to more urban areas and recognizing, oh, there's like racism. And, you know, we had this idea, you know, and so it sounds like that is a similar experience for you that you were kind of faced with, oh, the system is set up for people, for people to fail, specific populations to fail. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that you can't talk about, well, so many, so many things, right? But certainly not the criminal justice system without, without overtly acknowledging race and in the legacy of racism Um, in the, just the structural, and I mean, yes, the structural institutions, systems, policy, I mean, everything um, that are in place and at place still um, that have a direct impact on, you know, devastating communities and generations. So Jess and I were just talking about stress, um, having the job that you have and the work is like never done, right? It's like tireless. Um, how is it for you? Is it stressful? Is it a stressful role? Um, yeah, it is stressful in that, um, as you said, the work is never done and it's tireless, but I, you know, and I, I think because of um, the money side of things, like trying to bring resources to the community that we're serving and to the individuals we're serving, um, I don't work on the front lines. I don't know the clients yeah. very well, so I don't have that stress of, mm-hmm. but I have this other, like a, a, I feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure that we are not overlooked to make sure that our clients are heard, to make sure their needs are met. And I think it's, um, there's such a gravity to the Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. It's so serious. And um, 
you know, we only work with individual, you know, with felony cases. And so like, this could be their life, you know, and it, it's, an, it's an incredible responsibility. And um, I think that's, you know, that, that can be overwhelming. Like it, it does feel like, a, you know, a blessing in a lot of ways that you're trusted with this responsibility that someone yeah. trusts you to do this, that they're willing to put their future in, you know, our hands, the LCLC hands, but, um, you know, certainly I feel an obligation to make sure that we can provide the best and, you know, the best resources, the best lawyers, the best social service providers, everything that they need, um, that they get. So it's like kind of two different things, right? Managing your personal daily stress. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also the overwhelming battle against institutional racism. And I guess, um, do you feel like a grassroots or community effort is making an impact? I think that's kind of like what Kelly and I were ending with um, our talk with Dr. DeMorney. It's kind of like, well, this really sucks. And this is really depressing. What are strategies that can work? And and do do you think that that community effort um, being boots on the ground in the community, people from the community, um, is positively impacting and, and pushing against those structures? I think, yes. I think that I have heard more and more people who are in positions of power realizing that the community has to be the leader. The community has to be the ones to decide what happens to them. The community needs control over what happens to them, but shifting those resources to them is difficult. And, you know, there's hundreds of years pushing in the opposite directions. Right. And so it's a lot to overcome. I think another, um, another issue that I, I know I deal with, uh, is that I'm just really surrounded by like-minded people. Um, and so I feel like that's so common. And so we all kind of agree, like we all kind of you know, have very similar mindsets and thinking. And so do I feel like, you know, we're pushing against people who think differently that I don't, I mean, I'm the amount of contact I come in with people who are of a different mindset is so minimal Mm. that I feel, and I, you know, obviously we can talk about the whole social media, you know, all of the ways that that's getting even worse and, um, you know, further apart, but I feel like, I'm not often in circles where there is sort of this moment where it's like you can change a heart and a mind because people were generally speaking, we're most people I'm in contact with are already on the same page. Um, I do think our team, you know, our executive director, he's in a lot of leadership positions where he, where he is definitely coming into a lot more contact with people who might not be in the same mindsets. And I do think, um, that progress has been made. And I definitely, you know, even if you just start looking, you you know, you kind of start picking up on things when you see papers issued or um, newspaper articles and things, it does have a, like community does seem to be emphasized more. Um, But I feel like the opposite is also true. Like we also have like a lot of people coming back and saying, you know, but, 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 or look at, you know, Fox News just has done some outrageous um, documentaries and, you know, so I, I think, you know, on a large scale, how do I, do I feel like we made tremendous gains? I'm not sure, um, which is sad and, and depressing. Yeah. And, so and, in, you know, in that community, you guys are making oh. an impact. Is that overall impacting 
larger systems? Probably not. Um, and so it sounds like you uh, manage work stress or that, that you tell yourself the narrative of like, I'm here to get funding. Like, and if, <clears throat> if I get funding, like I can make a change, like you obtaining mm-hmm. grants and funding really makes a huge change. And then what about on a personal level, um, you know, how are you managing stress day to day? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. I know you, I know you have one child. How many kids do you have? Two. Yep. Two. Mm-hmm. And how, and how, what are their ages? 12 and 11. Oh, <laughs> yep. good. Those I'm telling you, my, tw- I have a teen and a tween and a seven-year-old. I'm telling you what my tween, <clears throat> there's some hormones yeah. <laughs> raging and anger. And I don't, the, so you have a uh, double, double going yeah. on there. So how are you kind of managing that being a working mom and, and those stresses mm-hmm. and finding that balance for yourself? Yeah. Well, one quick thing just to um, leave it on a more hopeful note from what I just said is I do think if you look at least across more local government, um, you will see people who have gone to very high levels of office who are very committed, active, vocal Hmm. about putting community first. So I think that's incredibly hopeful and, you know, great and should be something that we celebrate and acknowledge. Mm -hmm. So that's um, one thing I just want to make sure I said, but I think managing stress. Okay. Well, I haven't really mastered this yet. (laughs) None none of us have. There's no silver bullet. (laughs) I think what I have noticed is that I, I feel like I manage myself, my, my stress, my emotions, um, myself better when I try to carve out just even a little bit of time for myself. And, you know, it's easy to let that go and be like, I can't do yeah. it. I have to do X, Y, and Z instead. But I really do think I, um, when I put it, you know, an hour in the morning to ride the Peloton or go for a walk or, um, 30 minutes at night to read or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the case is, um, in this, I'm going to stay, steal a Robin Arzone quote from Peloton where she said, like, self-care is not selfish and, can, you know, have a career and have a family and, you know, we can do it all. But it's also about, um, you know, like enjoying your life and, and setting the those boundaries. And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard. It's super hard. <laughs> and I mean, I think part of it is that we are we were raised by baby boomers. Jesse and I have talked about this a lot too, which is like, we just feel this like loyalty sometimes to like get the work done, to do do what you see needs to get done and just get it done. Um, versus like, I, f- I would say like younger people's mentality, which is a little different, right? And I, I realized that I, some things I overthink and I panic about really aren't that big of deals and really can wait till tomorrow. But there's this like pressure that I feel I put on myself. Right. Right. Yes. To do those things. I am the same. And it's, um, you know, I do also like, feel like I get a lot of satisfaction, um, out of, you know, getting something done and doing something well. Like like, I love a to-do list and crossing it off and, you know, and there's validation and like getting some, you know, doing well at work and, yeah, but it's something. And so I think, you know, I, I agree, like it is a struggle um, for those reasons. And I've, I'm very yeah. goal oriented. And Kelly was like, yeah. make a goal, make a goal for yourself to <laughs> like, you know, whatever it is, yeah. like get a massage. And I'm like, oh, I know it's, it, it it's like easier said than done, right? When it, it feels uncomfortable. And so yeah. that 
it feels uncomfortable to put ourselves first, but I yeah. think for sure we always think about, right. Like uh, on a plane, like you have to put your oxygen mask on before you put on, on mm-hmm. your children. And that's so true, right? Like we, um, if, if we do everything for everyone, we end up being nothing to no one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that hits on another, um, common feeling is guilt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you feel guilty all the time, guilty that you're doing this, guilty that you're doing that, guilty yeah. taking massage or oh, for sure. table or not working at the, you know, so it's, um, you know, that sense of responsibility, that sense of guilt to, you know, how, and it's misplaced, you know, it's completely misplaced, but, um, it still exists. And, and, you know, those are certainly things I'm still working through (laughs) the mom guilt. And I think too, um, so many, so much is, is relying on you, right? Like, I think depending on the nature of our work, Kelly used to always say, it's not like we're saving babies, right? Mm-hmm. Remember we would say like people would be super stressed in Kelly's work. And she was like, really guys, like <laughs> not like we're saving babies or whatever, but it's like, I think it, it just seems like you're so passionate about your work and recognize the importance of what you need to do. And you're seeing an impact all the time. Like, you know, if you get this grant, that's going to immediately impact people. And so, um, I think that is what kind of makes it difficult when you have that pull, um, when you're doing work, that's incredibly Mm -hmm. important and critical. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I I've only ever worked in nonprofit. Um, so I feel like I don't have another experience to, to measure it against, but, um, I think certainly that lends itself to feeling, you know, like I have to do this, I have to do this. But at the same time, I do think it helps on the opposite side. Like um, when I do start getting really overwhelmed or but then I, I stop to think like, I'm really actually so lucky I get to be a part of this because it really is transformational, groundbreaking work. That's interesting. Like it's, it's very interesting work and it's, um, I work with amazing colleagues and people who are doing incredible things and um, big thinkers, systems thinkers. And so uh, while it can, it's sort of this double-edged sword where it's like, yes, it, it can be so draining, but then it's also cup filling <laughs> um, yeah. in that it's like, it really also has that opposite effect of like, oh my gosh, this is amazing that I get to be a part of this. Well, and sometimes I feel like that's part of what, like doing like self-reflection in some way is that self, like filling your cup doesn't always have to be a manicure, right? You can find rewarding things in what you do. Um, we always talk just about um, the person who says, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And it sounds like you you love what you do to some extent that it is not always feeling like work, which is really awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not everybody gets a chance to do that. Right. So I'm going to go through some of my other questions um, that I had, and then Jesse, you can keep your free flow situation <laughs> as well. Um, but what do you think that um, your two kiddos, what, how would they describe what you do? Um, well, I remember a project that they had to do. I don't know, Kelly, Wes would have done it too, but um, I don't know, maybe in kindergarten or first grade. And Oh yeah, like the Mother's um, Day? Said, yeah, yeah. And they said I got people jobs, which... Oh. Um, I do not, but that was what that's how they perceived what I did. <laughs> um, but I think now they'd probably say I stare at a computer screen and on Zoom a lot. <laughs> but fundamentally, I think they would, you know, they think that I help people. 
And I think that would be how they explain it. They knew they know it has something to do with criminal justice, but um, you know, they don't understand the complexities of all that yeah. yet. And is that anything that that you share with them or that you guys mm-hmm. have conversations about about mm-hmm. um social justice or oh, yeah. racism or civic responsibility or, or things like that? Like what types of conversations might you be having? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We do. Um, it's very, you know, I'm very vocal about it. Um, certainly bring it anytime, like something is, you know, somebody, we see something on, you know, TV or an article or just in conversation. Um, you know, we, we definitely have those conversations. I think, just with how the world, you know, after George Floyd was murdered, um, that who really brought those conversations out a lot mm-hmm. more. That was obviously, um, you know, horrific time. And uh, we had lots of conversations. And I think, um, particularly for my daughter, who was a little bit older, um, she was able to understand it a little, you know, more. And now it's, you know, it's just part of, I guess, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to be misled with something that we, but I, you know, I actively try to have those conversations and talk to them about it. I mean, we, you can't see us, but we are white and I want them to know that we walk through the world in a very different way than, than others. And they need to recognize that and be aware of it. And, um, you know, just certainly it's something that's at the forefront. We were talking a little bit more about this with Sarah when we talked about critical race theory, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, at a very micro level, like our kids, um, the education they're getting in school is is bringing a lot of these issues to light. The books that they've had to read in school. I mean, in a Catholic school last year, right, the kids read um, the Birmingham bombing mm-hmm. story and just being aware of, um, you know, history in the past. And so even for... So is, I mean, when she had, was reading that book or writing those things, like she already has this foundation that you're teaching her, right? right. In terms of like her own point of view on on what those things are. That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, not, there's you know tremendous amount more to do, obviously always, but um, I'm always, you know, getting, making sure we're putting those books in front of her diverse authors, um, you know, making sure that they're comfortable talking, asking questions and racism is a very complicated issue. And it is, it's like, how do you mm-hmm. um, explore that with your children yeah. and, and talk about that, what that really means? Cause there's a lot of nuances and it's a very complicated subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the other thing is, I guess, going back to the thing that they're reading books in school and they're learning about it in different ways and they're living in a city or an urban, just, you guys live in a like a metropolitan area, you know, there are other things that they can kind of get exposed to. Um, so Donna, well, yeah, what I mean, about, yeah. um, so one of the things that I was, we were curious about, so because it's social justice month, month mm-hmm. for us at Chasing Brighter, we try to, try to also pick a book, which we mm-hmm. picked um, yesterday. The Hate You Give. The Hate You oh, Give. Oh my God, it's actually. so good. Yeah. It's so oh, good. Um, yeah. I'm like, four chapters in or something. I want something. my 14 year old to read it. We're yeah. Gonna, yes. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. So what are some other books that, mm-hmm. you know, come to mind for you that 
stick in your mind? Well, so uh, Jessica, as you were talking, um, I'm actually currently reading Case and um, oh, okay. Axel Wilkerson, um, and it's all about the, uh, you know, the dominant group and it lots, you know, it's, it's like, I don't want to say it's so good <laughs> because it's, it's horrible, but um, it's, it's very well written. It's very important reading um, in, in sight. You know, I'm making notes in the margins and um, doing all that. So I would highly, you know, I'm not, I'm not through it yet, but I'm, I have had that on my list yes. to read for a long time too. It's yeah, so is it pretty heavy? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's very um, you know, it's yes, it's heavy. Um very good. Very important. Because yeah, and- in America, we wanna say any right, was that like anybody can I don't know, I'm like butchering the thing, right? But anybody can become rich. You can come to America and anybody can become at anything. And it's like, we're this free country where anybody can be anything. We're not like India that has a caste system or we're not like that country that has a caste system. And it's kind of like, uh, hello, uh, right? Like that. Yeah. So I'm only have systems set in place yeah. that it's not um, equal opportunity for everyone. Right. I'm only like a hundred pages in, but um, yes. And now I'm very embarrassed that I mispronounced the word caste. Uh, but anyway. Um, we can edit that out. Okay, great. Good. Make me sound smart. It's, um, you know, one of the big, you know, is biggest takeaways so far this, you know, just this far into it is that, you know, like this, the contract of race is social. It didn't exist until, until America was caught, you know, people came, you know, you weren't white, you were Irish, you weren't white, you were Italian. And this whole thing about, um, you know, black and white was really came to be when, when the U S was colonized. And so that, you know, how she presents that, that was, um, very interesting. And that sounds really interesting. mm -hmm. And, um, as you're referencing Jessica, there's a piece about when Martin Luther King went to India and, um, was meeting with some of the low, like the lowest, casts. And, um, I think that they were called untouchables and, um, they said, you know, this is, you know, India made that co- that connection immediately, like, oh, well, that was the equivalent. And she has, um, you know, an excerpt about that. But um, yes, it's it's very heavy, but certainly um, I am enjoying reading it. Well, it's increasing your knowledge base to then Absolutely. have a framework yeah. to explain things to mm-hmm. your children, right? Yeah. Or, and- yeah. And, you know, I think, too, like when you were saying that, I just feel like in that right there, how we're describing this is like, just once again, just to show, it goes to show how privileged we are. We don't have to think about this every single day. <laughs> we're trying to teach that. And like, you know, other people are living this every single day and they don't have, they don't have the opportunity to say like, oh, well, this is something we're going to learn about and touch and deal with. It's like, that's their life experience and how privileged that we are, that it's like, oh, we're going to teach our kids this. <laughs> and it's not um, in their face every day that they have to, they're live. not living in. And it's like, right. you know, we come from a very, you know, just that in and of itself is, you know, it's just telling, but um, so that the hate you give was gorgeous. Um, just mercy. Another must read. Mm-hmm. If you've never read just mercy, it's um, you have to read it. Um, and then there's a, another book, which I think I read in grad school, it was called American Dream. And um, it's written by a New York Times columnist. And it's sort of uh, looking at welfare reform, but through individuals. So like, you know, you have this macro level policy, but then how does that play out on the local, like on the individual level? And it was just really well written, complex 
you know, complex mm-hmm. policies, but really broken down into um, like digestible. This is like the actual impact that that has and how people experience it. Um, so that was also something I recall being like very impacted by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I know you are an avid reader like Jess and I. Mm-hmm. Um, how about right now? Like what's what are you reading or what's kind of queued up for you? Mm-hmm. I, saw, I know oh, you read your yeah. you're reading cast, but reading are you reading now. other like do you read one book at a time or do you read? I do read one book at a time. Um, it's like how my brain's organized. I can't do, do more than one. It's like I have to finish and then go to the next. The, my most favorite book that I have read in the recent past was a book that Isabel read, my my daughter, who's 12. And it was The Crossover, it's called. And oh, you've talked about this. Okay. Oh my gosh. Like that was the last book I can remember reading where when I finished it, I clutched it to my chest and just like had to sit with it for a while, just like hugging it. Cause it just like, Oh God, it it's beautiful. It's so good. It's beautiful. Um, you'll read it in a day it's written in prose. Um, just marvelous. Um, and I think like some of my, mo- like some of my favorite books that I've read of late happened kids but like uh books that are meant for younger uh like I read the one and only Ivan um mm. with the kids and that too was just such a I mean it's a beautiful book it's such you, a have your book. have your kids read out of my mind yeah uh, yes my daughter had not my son but my daughter did she loved it love love loved it yes oh, you talk about I think one mm-hmm. of the things I love about books and that's what's clicked with my daughter is and and that's what one of the tenets of critical race theory, right, is just reading about the experience of Mm -hmm. someone other than you Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. you can travel, you can open your mind, you can get, you you know, you can get in the mind of someone that's having an experience different than you, right? And that can help create empathy and understanding and open your mind um, to other experiences. Yeah. You know, um, I, I love that. Why I'm teasing you about being tough on yourself. It's like, people are always asking me, recommendations at work. And so I'm like, Oh, I've got to read all these kind of like self-help books. And then I'm reading other books and then my brain hurts. And so I go back to like, um, there are books like Carolyn Brown basically writes like Hallmark, like Hallmark movie books, but it's like, I can read them like two days and I call them like brain candy. And I'm like, okay, I need to take a break. I need to read this book where everything has a happy, tidy ending yes. and everybody ends yeah. up together and it's happy because yes. my brain hurts from reading all of these mm-hmm. depressing uh, books where yeah. people die or yeah, it's like we want to feel good about life sometimes or cast where it's like <laughs> just by our reality, right? Yeah. Our reality. Sometimes I can be overwhelmed with just reality. Mm-hmm. So I want to escape to something yeah. um, fun and happy and simple. Right. Yes. There's, yeah, there's a lot of darkness and depression, you know, like there's a lot of things yeah. to feel sad about. It is definitely good to feel happy about things too. Um, I feel that way too, like John Grisham. Sometimes I just crave like a John Grisham mm. novel. because It's like, you know, it's yeah. going to be engaging and intriguing. You're falling to it and it's going to keep your attention. Um, but it's not that super happy. Yeah. Content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just finished, um, a biography on the Wright brothers. Oh, that was a David McAuliffe book, which I mm-hmm. haven't really read many of his. And it was actually surprisingly light and cheerful. And, um, you know, it is interesting that various genres, depending on the writer and the story can be yeah. happy. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, I, I have um, to go back. I think this is how you are too, Kelly. Uh, but you know, I have like two bookshelves full of like on red books. And so 
I keep it well stocked at all times, but that's one of my favorite things on earth to do is when you finish a book to go and pick out the next book. Um, you know, what's, what's going to be the next one in the queue. So that is one of um, my favorite things. Um, Just, activities um, in life. <laughs> Dawn has my dream living room. Her husband built her an entire wall bookshelf. Mm-hmm. It's like floor to ceiling and it's filled with books. And every time I go over to her house, I just borrow a book because I feel like it's just so beautiful. I love your bookshelves. Thank you. So envious. I am a big Kindle reader because I'm a voracious reader and I can't wait. I have to immediately start a new book. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And I, but I do, Mm -hmm. I read, but I do Kelly and I love bookstores. I love buying Mm -hmm. books too. Um, so I, I listen, I listen to audio, you know, mm-hmm. audible, I, I read books, I, you know, physical books, I have the Kindle I have, to, I'm probably reading two to three books wow. yeah. at a time. Like, cause I don't know my, well, I think my brain can do it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, not, Cause I told Kelly, I read this book. I think I read it before. I think I read oh, that's so I funny. Yeah. I read so yes. much. I don't remember if I read Which it. if you had, you're like, it sounds familiar, I think. <laughs> so that would be the problem with reading two or three books yeah. at a time. Yeah. Because I don't really remember what I read. But um, yeah, we we love reading. I just found out, I was just kind of, I don't know what I was doing, but on the Audible app, you know, they have Audible Originals. Yeah. And I had this book. It's really good. It's called The Cuckoo's Cry. I really liked it. It's a pretty short. Isn't that Robert um, Galbraith? made i don't know it's made for it's, audible it's, it's not the, oh that's cuckoo's calling Cuckoo calling yeah which she's got because she's got a the, new one out yeah it's the oh, first but the cuckoo's cry by carolyn over overington it's set in australia in 2020 during the pandemic and it's the first time i read a book like i read a book and they kind of said oh we put our masks on but you know this was like a book right at the beginning of the pandemic so it's the first one mm-hmm. that i heard about like they weren't sure letting people in their house or what to do or whatever it was really interesting mm. it was a pretty short book and so i was like oh let me go look and discover on the audible app about all these audible originals mm. <clears throat> they have kids young adults whatever and they're made for audible they're yeah. free if you uh, i think if you have an audible membership or i and i'm not sure yes. how that all works but yes. for me they're free and um i found young adults and so i sent all these ones to my daughter because they have like actors with different voices yeah and it's more sound of a effects. theater production yeah and so I was like I think you're gonna like some of these books and I was so happy that she was really getting into it because to me she and she has to read so much for school mm-hmm. but it was like it's an uh, just exposing them to something different um I think getting them off screens a little bit and so today she was like I can't find my airpods because I want to listen to this you know theatrical audio thing that she was listening to something like, oh I need to get my 11 year old into this so I want to show him they they had all, the entire 45 hours of all of Jane Austen wow like just all of these books um they had the jungle book just different books they for have kids, treasure but, island which was yeah. I listened to that one it was really like, really Count good of Monte Cristo my one of my all-time favorite books oh, I love the Count of Monte Cristo, yeah. um but yeah I thought that was that was cool too to get mm-hmm. I, it makes me think of radio and yeah. the radio theater yeah. or whatever and kind That's of what it getting like. yeah. kids into another genre and I think same thing we're talking about they're not our kids you know kids would not be physically reading but they would be you know having their mind opened mm-hmm. to someone else's experience and so that's mm-hmm. another way that we can expose our kids like um the hate you give yeah you know I I was able to get we have the Libby app you know you can get the um 
you know, you can get from the library. So we, we have the audio book from the library. And that's sometimes a way I can sneak things into my kids. Like I'll listen to it in the car and they'll be like, oh, what happened oh, to that person? To? What yeah. happened in the book? Like, yeah. What happened to that person that happened there? And like, oh, that's terrible. And it's like, yes, right. right. Little ways that we can expose them to um, other ways of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have not done audible ever. And I know Kelly loves it. So I, I do. I definitely, I need to get into it. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'd love it. And there's nothing better on a long car ride than doing, you know, some sort yeah. of cast or um, audio book. So it just makes it go like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and, and we already have high reading levels, so we don't have, like for my kids, it's like, yeah, yeah they still need to like learn words, you know, <laughs> right. go back and forth sometimes depending the on the book though. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. I have Same. a friend Same. who loans me books all the time and, um, <laughs> they aren't always books that I want to physically read. And so I'll always just listen to the audio version and then I give that book back to yeah. them. That's how I feel like I can audit kind of like a, a, I know I say kind of like, isn't that the self-help genre, like a, like a Brene Brown type book mm-hmm. or something like that, where it's like, I want to get the content and then I'm like, Ooh, I want to, I want to read it because I want the physical books. So I can go back yeah, and write in it for sure. Right. For, so it's kind of like a reference yeah. or like Kelly and I just some of, I shot. think some of the nonfiction books, it's really hard to listen to the audible. Cause it'll be like study 25, 26 from blah, blah, blah. Like all the footnotes and things that they add yeah. into it. It gets really, cause you read everything. So it gets tough. Yeah. We could have like an entire, I'm already know an entirely separate episode just on talking about books yeah yeah I feel like um that's when I truly come out like when you're talking about a book you really loved I feel like or didn't love you know just any you know I feel like I come alive for sure it's one of my favorite things to do yeah <laughs> us it. too yeah. yeah Don thank you so much for joining us yes. today thank hopefully you. you had fun this was fun this is my first time ever doing anything like this it was yeah. very fun thank you for having oh, me yeah, well we, we want to have you back love, too we'll yeah i loved books. hearing about the, the critical work that you guys are doing yeah. thanks for listening and joining us today and don't forget to follow us on social media at chasing brighter or on our blog chasingbrighter.com.